Love worshiping with y'all. Man. My name is Matt. If you haven't met me, hi. Good morning. Good to see y'all. If you haven't met me, I'm Matt. I'm the lead pastor here by God's grace. And I want to share a little story with you that literally has changed the trajectory of my life. John Piper writes this in his book, Don't Waste Your Life. In April 2000, Ruby Eliason and Laura Edwards were killed in Cameroon, West Africa. Ruby was over 80, single all her life. She poured it out for one great thing, to make Jesus Christ known among the unreached, the poor, and the sick. Laura was a widow, a medical doctor pushing 80 years old and serving at Ruby's side in Cameroon. The brakes failed, the car went over a cliff, and they were both killed instantly. I asked my congregation, was that a tragedy? Two lives driven by one great passion, namely to be spent in unheralded service to the perishing poor for the glory of Jesus Christ. Even two decades after most of their American counterparts had retired to throw away their lives on trifles. No, that is not a tragedy. That is a glory. These lives were not wasted and these lives were not lost. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Mark 8, 35. Then he says this. I'll tell you what a tragedy is. I will show you how to waste your life. Consider a story from the February 1998 edition of Reader's Digest, which tells about a couple who took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. They now live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. At first, when I read it, I thought it might be a joke, a spoof on the American dream, but it wasn't. Tragically, this was the dream. Come to the end of your life, your one and only precious God-given life, and let the last great work of your life before you give an account to your Creator be this, playing softball and collecting shells. Picture them before Christ at the great day of judgment. Look, Lord, see my shells? That is a tragedy. And people today are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace that tragic dream. Over against that, I put my protest. Don't buy it. Don't waste your life. That, alongside scriptures, where Jesus says essentially the same things, has changed the trajectory of my life from the way that I spend my money to the way that I spend my time to, to even my career, to the way that I interact with people. Because I don't want to waste my life. I don't want to get to the end of my life and go, look, Lord, here's my seashells. I want to do something that matters. I want to do something that matters, not for me, but for Him. And that's what we see in this text this morning. So if you'll turn to Matthew 25. We're going to be looking at Jesus' words the next, the next four weeks. And we're going to be looking at the parable of the talents today. We're going to be talking about stewardship. And a lot of people think, when they think of the word stewardship, they think of money. 
And that certainly has something to do with it, but it's not just money. And I just want to say this right out of the gate. We're not doing this to get your money. We're doing this so that Jesus would get more a hold of your heart. Because I love you and I care about you. And I want you to experience a life that is not wasted. To spend your life on what will produce true joy. And a couple of things to know before we get into this text. In verse 14, right, right at the beginning, it says, For it will be like a man going on a journey. What is it? What is Jesus talking about? Well, he's responding to his di- disciples who asked him about his return. Because Jesus was talking about his return. And they're like, what's that about? Day of judgment, you coming back? And so we see a chapter earlier. He's responding to that. So it is Jesus' return. Judgment day. Another thing you need to know, this is the parable of the talents. Maybe you thought as a kid, maybe you still think this. I'm not judging if you do. Um, but a talent is not, is not a skill. And we're not talking about playing soccer, playing guitar, or, or anything like that, or being a good cook. Okay, we're talking about a sum of money. So one talent equals about 20 years wages. So it's a, it's a ton of money. That's what you need to know. So let's read this. Matthew twenty five fourteen. For it, judgment day, Jesus coming back, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more, but he who had received the one talent went and dug it in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came home and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I've made five talents more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I, I, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So, 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 so I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness in the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So, light words of Jesus. Jesus has some strong things to say about being a good steward. So let's just start there. What does that mean? 
what does it mean to be a steward of anything or to be entrusted, as we've called this series? Well, and we see that right, right there in verse 14, this master entrusted to them, these servants, his property. And here's what entrusted means. It means you're given something to take care of and use for the giver's honor. You're given something to take care of and use for the giver's honor. This is what stewardship is. And there's four essential keys to living an entrusted life, a life of good stewardship. You have to recognize it's not yours. You have to recognize that it is a responsibility. You have to recognize that it is expected of you to use it. And fourth, it's expected of you to be it is expected to be used for the giver's honor. Here, the master gives his servants money to take care of and use for his honor. Let's think about it like this. So I, I'm pretty positive everyone in this room has had an experience with babysitting. So maybe you were the babysitter or maybe you, you entrusted your kids to someone else to be babysat. Um, or maybe you were the one being babysat. Or whatever it is, I think we can all relate when it comes to entrusting kids to someone. So babysitters, I know there's, there's a couple of you in the room who are actually my babysitters. So you need to pay extra careful attention right now. Okay. You should already know these things. They're very obvious, but just in case I haven't spelled them out for you clearly, here's what I expect when I leave my kids with the babysitter. First, I expect you to realize that those are definitely not your kids. They are my kids. Okay. So, and, and most, in most cases with my babysitters, I don't think that would even be physically possible at age 15, 16 with a six-year-old, but, um, but they're not your kids. Okay. They're not yours. Second, it's a great responsibility. I'm leaving you with my kids' lives and well-being in your hands. Okay, thirdly, I expect you to do something with my kids. Okay, I, not just keep them alive, not lock them in their room and keep them breathing. I expect you to do something. And then, fourthly, I expect you to do something safe, fun, and appropriate with my kids. Not jumping off the roof, into the kiddie pool, but going to the park, playing Uno giving them food, those sorts of things, okay? None of that should be a shock to you babysitters. But this is what it means to be a good steward. Now, with these servants, they were entrusted some money. And when you're babysitting, you're entrusted some kids. But we have been entrusted everything from God, absolutely everything. Our master has given us Everything. Acts 17.25 says, He, God, Himself, gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. We just sang this. It's your breath in our lungs, so we pour out our praise. Your very breath is a gift from God. He's entrusted with you. This moment is a gift from God. Your time, your money, your skills, e- even your salvation, your relationships, your friendships, everything has been entrusted to you by God. And remember our keys to being entrusted or, or being a good steward. We can't hear this enough. Remember, nothing is yours. It's God's money. It's God's time. It's God's stuff. It's God's breath. 
Second, everything you have comes with responsibility. You should feel the weight of that with every breath that you take, with every blessing that you have. It's a responsibility. Third, you're expected by God to use what you've been given. It's not an option to bury the skills and talents He's given you. It's not, it's not an option to, to bury those opportunities that He's given you. Fourth, you're expected to use it for His honor, for God's honor, not your honor. We need to be asking, will this bring God honor? Will it bring Him delight? Will it bring Him joy? And we have a choice with everything. We can be like the first two servants in this parable and use it for God. Or we can keep it to ourselves like the third servant does. It's pretty simple. You use it for God or you use it for yourself. You can be a good godly steward or a bad selfish steward. And we're faced with that thousands of times a day with the things that God has, things that God has given us. And here's what's going to determine how you act. Your attitude towards your master. Your attitude towards God. Attitude drives action. I mean, we, we know this. We experience this. We don't actually genuinely, authentically love and serve anybody. Action. If we have a crummy attitude towards them. We might grit and bear it for a while. But it's not genuine love and it's not genuine service. Look at these servants' attitudes. This is the key to this text that just unlocks this parable for us. Look at their attitudes towards the master. It's very easy to miss, but absolutely essential to understand this. Their attitude drove their action or their inaction. Before they did anything, they had an attitude that determined what they did. So let's look at the, there's three attitudes here. And the first one, first attitude is the third servant. And he doesn't care about the master. Doesn't give a rip about the master at all. Selfishness is his motivator. In verses 26 and 27, God saw right through this. Verses, verse 26, but his master answered, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scatter no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers and at my coming. I should have received what was my own with interest. God saw right through him. This guy tried to claim, oh, I was afraid of you. You're a hard man. And God goes, no, you weren't, you weren't even afraid of me. You didn't care about me. Because if you would have, you would have invested that and gotten interest on it. But you didn't do a thing with it. This represents unbelievers who are cloaked as believers. These people always choose, almost always choose to keep whatever it is, their time, their money, their talents, their breath to themselves. And they probably do enough to keep up appearances. But think about this. Keeping up appearances is actually really selfish. Okay, if you show up to church. Just so you can say I went to church and people can see that you came to church. You're doing that for yourself, not for God. See, attitude is everything. 
maybe this is you. Chances are in a group this size, there are people in this room who don't give a rip about God, but are here just going through the motions. And here is what I would say to you. I beg you. I beg you to wake up and repent. Turn around. Confess your sin to God. God will see right through you on judgment day. I don't wish that on anyone. You, you saw what happened to the servant. We're not saved by our good stewardship. Okay, that's not what I'm saying here this morning. But good stewardship will happen if you truly believe. Second attitude we see here is the servant who is afraid of the master. They're afraid of the master. Fear is the motivator before he did anything. And you might be like, who is that servant? This is the servant that I'm calling the non-existent fourth servant. Okay, here's why he's non-existent. This is who the third servant claimed to be, but wasn't. This is who the third servant wanted to be when the master came around, but this wasn't even actually him. Verse 24. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. This is who he wanted to be. This non-existent fourth servant viewed their master as hard, harsh, uncaring, a thief who was cutthroat, cut corners, and was to be feared. Now, it's really important to note that in almost all of Jesus' parables, especially when there's a character that represents God, that you don't make a one-to-one correlation all the time between that that person in the parable and God. Because that isn't the point. The point here is that we need to be good stewards of what we have. That he's not trying to give a, a theology of, of, of who God is necessarily. Because God is infinite. He can't do that with confined in a story like this. But this represents, this non-existent fourth servant, who the third servant wanted to be, represents believers who are living in fear. Believers who sometimes choose to keep their time, their money, whatever it is, to themselves. And this is all of us at points. This is me at points. This is you at points. This is all of us at points in our lives with different things. And we start keeping what's entrusted to us to ourselves when our attitude towards God starts to change. So maybe you're not afraid of God but maybe you're afraid that he's not good. Is he actually who he said he is? Maybe you're afraid he's not actually loving. He doesn't have my best interest in mind. He's not for me. He's against me. And we start to believe that. That's why our attitude towards God needs to be monitored constantly. We need to recognize when our street level theology gets off track. See, we, we all have a theology. We all, we all have these set of beliefs that we say, yes, God is good. God is loving. God is just. God is all of these things. We say them and believe them in our heads. But, but in the way we act, our street-level theology often says very differently than what we say 
is true. That's why when a family member dies or you lose your job or maybe just it's more low grade, your kids are driving you bananas. We start asking ourselves, God, are you actually good? Can I trust you? And you know he is, but it feels like he's mean, like he's hurtful. And that's why we need to to preach to ourselves what is real versus what we feel. We can't just we can't just let ourselves run with with how we're feeling at any given moment. We have to cling to what we know is true about God. And even in the midst of the worst circumstances in life, God still is good. God still is loving. God still is for you and not against you. Those things will not change. And it's not wrong to question God, by the way. We're going to be in the Psalms this summer. And we're going to see people questioning God a lot in the Psalms, in Scripture itself. So it's not wrong to do that, but it is wrong to stay there. Because Eventually, we become embittered towards God and we start to waste our lives right and left. Don't monitor your attitude towards God by yourself. Share with your friend, with your spouse, with a loved one, with your connection group as soon as possible. When, you, when, when your street-level theology starts to slip, your attitude towards God starts to change and shift Share that with other people. Get some support. Get some help. And they can remind you of what's true. And here's what's true. God is good. God is trustworthy. And he proved it on the cross. Worship band City Alight has a song called, I Will Trust My Savior Jesus. And in that it says, Oh, on that cross, how it was seen. I can go now ever trusting in the one who died for me. What could I bring for your gift is complete. So I trust you. Simply trust you, Lord, with every part of me. God is good and he is trustworthy and he proved it. We need to sing those things. We need to remind ourselves of those truths in those moments. And here's the good news for us. There's grace for you. There's grace for me. We don't have to be perfect. We will and do inevitably waste our lives at points. But that's why Jesus died. That's why he rose from the dead. He knew we would fall short. And so the good news is also this. That the same Jesus who died and rose from the dead. Can now free you from that fear. And strengthen you to adjust your attitude towards him. The third attitude we see here is the first two servants. And their attitude towards the master was this. They felt cared for by the master. Cared for, blessed, loved by the master. Acceptance and security is their motivator. My master is good. I do trust him. And this was their identity before they did anything. Their position drove their performance. Not the other way around. Their performance didn't determine their position. No, they knew that the master cared for them. And that determined how they acted. And so here, these first two servants, they're eager, they're excited to serve. We see in verse 16, at once they went out and used this money. 
And they used it wisely and for his honor. And they're eager and excited to report to the master. Verse 20. Hey, look what I did with this. Check it out. This represents believers who are joyfully, sacrificially living in trusted lives. They know they're accepted. They know they're secure. And they know they're loved by God without a shadow of a doubt. How do they know that? How can they have that security? Because Jesus laid it on the line for them on the cross. Just to accept me as his child. So I'm secure, not because of what I've done, but because of what he's done. And so it just frees me to serve him. Now, let's look at the results here. Let's look at the results of keeping it to yourself. The third servant. Verses 26 and 27. You have a disappointed master. He says, you wicked and slothful servant. You wicked and lazy servant. Verse 28. Another result. He loses what he did have. He had the least amount. He lost that even. And third, he's condemned by the master in verse 30. Condemned not for what he did, but for what he didn't do. I mean, it's not like this guy was just living it up. Okay, it's not like he took the money and just squandered it on on stupid things. No, he just buried it in the ground. He did nothing with it. Verse 30, Jesus is absolutely talking about hell. It's clear in other scriptures where Jesus uses this language. Which tells us this. That inaction is as big a deal to God as improper action. Inaction is as big a deal to God as improper action. The results of keeping it to yourself for believers in moments of fear and doubt are this. Because... Because here's what I don't want you to do. I don't want you to walk away. If you are, if, if you believe in Jesus and are following Jesus, not just going through the motions, but genuinely believe in Jesus, you don't have to be worried about condemnation. Romans 8 tells us that. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But in those moments where we're starting to doubt God and fear God improperly and start to waste our lives, here's, here are the results for us. We have a disappointed father. He's still our father, but we have a disappointed father. But he he forgives us, but he's certainly not happy with us because sin is an abomination to him. He hates it. We also miss out on blessings from our father, either in this life or in heaven. And here's what we miss out on. We miss out on what the results are. For the first two servants. In the first result, verse 21, we see a proud master. When we decide to live in fear, doubt God, and waste our lives, we miss out on a proud master saying, well done, good and faithful servant. I mean, there's nothing like hearing that from an earthly dad. There are people who are, who are messed up because they haven't heard from their dad, I'm proud of you. So just a little side note, dads especially, moms as well, but dads especially, tell your kids you're proud of them. There's nothing like that. But how much more 
to miss out on our Heavenly Father saying, Well done, good and faithful servant. How much more to hear your perfect Heavenly Father say that. A proud master. Another result those two servants had is they're given more. And for us, I'm not exactly sure what that looks like. It could be more blessing here on earth, but not necessarily. It could be more opportunities to honor God here on earth. It could be more rewards in heaven. But regardless, we have a good God giving us good gifts. And those gifts are going to be better than anything you could experience on this earth. We're given more. And the last result is we have the joy of the master. Verse 21. Joy and delight that far surpasses anything this world has to offer. I mean, even as you feel the pain of sacrificing pleasure and comfort and ease and money and time for God. You know it's what leads to the most joy now and ultimately in eternity. So that's what propels you forward. Because the reality is that when you do this, when you live a life of good stewardship and trusting things to God, it will make your life more difficult here on earth. I'm not going to sugarcoat anything for you. But nothing will give you more joy. I can attest to that firsthand in, in several ways. We would be here till late. So I will not keep you late and I'll just keep it to one. Move in here to Boone to be a church planter. I was a youth pastor, very content with being a youth pastor where I was at. Very comfortable. But I did it because I knew this is what God had for me and I knew it would be very difficult and it has been difficult. But here's here's what's trumped that. There's been difficult times, but here's what's trumped that. I've ne- I I shouldn't say never, but One of the most joyful experiences in my life has been coming here planting this church as I've seen lives changed by Jesus Christ. I don't regret that decision at all. And you'll never regret any decisions you make to live lives of good stewardship, of taking what he's entrusted to you and giving it back to him because it produces more joy than anything that you can even articulate. Jesus is our example. Hebrews 12.2 says this. Talking about Jesus. Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. See, Jesus sacrificially suffered and served because he knew the joy of the Father was for sure. He knew that the Father was going to be pleased and honored. He knew that sin, sin, death, and the devil were going to be Defeated, and he knew that we would be forgiven and saved and become his children. Jesus died a bloody death on a cross, humbled himself, became a man, died a bloody, brutal death on a cross, beat to a pulp. Why? Because he saw the joy. There was joy set before him. He knew that this was worth it. And he got to experience that. And so will you and I. If we live lives entrusted to God. So what do we do with all this? 
You can apply this in every moment of your life. But I want to I wanna share some very specific ways that you could be a great steward here at Stonebridge Church. Myself and the elders thought these would, these would be really important to lay before you as opportunities if God is moving in your heart. If you haven't already, consider giving financially to our blessed campaign. Spend your money on classrooms for more kids and families to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. I can't think of a much better way to spend my money. Invest in the next generation knowing and obeying Jesus. It's all God's money anyway, right? Share in the blessing and the joy of giving back to Him in that way. Another way, serve in our D6 children's ministry. Currently, today... We have no first and second grade classroom, and that has made a lot of you angry. That has made me upset as well. That has made our D6 gals team that runs that upset as well. We're not happy about that. We want our first and second graders to have age-appropriate Bible teaching and get loved on. But if we don't have the people to do it, you can't do it, right? So we need more people. And this summer... Right now, we only have enough volunteers for ages 0 to 4. I would love for that to change. So, if you want to sign up, email Stacy. It's our church, uh, our church email in the, in the bulletin. Or you can sign up at the D6 desk. And all we're asking for the summer, is, it's, pretty, it's pretty simple. Just serve once a month. So, you got June, July, August. Um, just serve once a month. Not that difficult. Uh, What we need a lot of is just helpers, people there to help move from point A to point B. And I think just about everyone in this room is is capable of that. So um, I want to share a story, though, to motivate you. Last summer, I went to someone in our church whose wife was serving in our children's ministry. And I said, hey, we're going to go to two services. We need some more help. Would you be willing to do this? He's like, sure. It's not really my cup of tea but I'm willing to help out. Here's what this guy understands. He understands that his time and his comfort on Sunday morning are not his. They're God's. He understands that he has a responsibility to use his time and energy for God. He understands that God expects him to serve him. So why not with children's ministry? And even though it wasn't his favorite thing, he understood this, that this was not for his own pleasure and his own honor. It was for God's. So he was willing to give that up. Be a part of teaching the next generation about Jesus and also be a part of allowing adults to worship here undistractedly. I can attest firsthand from Good Friday service uh, what that's like with my own kids. (laughs) And how distracted I was. So there's two very practical things. I don't want to force you into them. I want God to lead you to those. And for you to do them with joy. But consider those. See I long for the day. And I hope you long for the day. When your master. When God. Your father says to you. Well done. Good and faithful servant. And until then. I'm going to strive to choose moment by moment to use everything that I have for God's honor, not my own. And I challenge you to do the same. 
And in so doing, we won't waste our lives. Let's pray.